This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's Accelerated Degree Programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in data science. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And this is Disorder the podcast where we try to order our mad, 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 mad world. And this week, we're going to dive deeper into how disinformation undermines democracies. And man, is this a topic that makes me mad. (laughs) We're going to look at how social media algorithms promote disinformation. This includes exploring how disinformation itself feeds on our own fears and insecurities and drives normal people towards extremism. This is really one of those classic enduring disorder, negative feedback loop fashion things, because it's our own internal divisions which make us more vulnerable to disinformation and hostile actors. And because of hostile actors and misinformation, we're more divided and more vulnerable to hostile actors and misinformation. So thanks, Jason. You've set that out perfectly. I, as a young British diplomat, thought promoting democracy was all about helping fledgling democracies overseas. And increasingly in the last few years, I'm beginning to worry it's also about protecting and shoring up our own democracies. The way our structures are arranged, it no longer reflects the will of the people, that oft-used phrase, especially... And I think there's a lot of people in the UK feeling this way. Our first past the post system, is it still fit for purpose? And in the US, where, as you know, I'm now based, there's a lot of discussion about Donald Trump's challenge to the foundation of the US democratic system, its constitution. Sure. And one of the ways that he challenges the constitution is by going after those people, whether they're Congress people or former generals who try to defend it. In this all against all struggle, I think we've seen civility go out the window, Alex. And one of the things that I remember as my kind of wake up moment into politics was when I was 11 and I heard Bill Clinton speak at the Democratic National Convention in 1992. 
And he was charismatic and civil and just seemed to represent all that we could want America to be and America was. And now I turn on the headlines and Trump is saying General Mark Milley should be put to death. (laughs) It's just incredible. He should be hung and executed and these disloyal this. And this is someone who might be in the American consciousness because he walked during the BLM protests to Lafayette Square when Trump showed the Bible upside down at that famous church on 15th and Black H. Lives Matter, and during the Black Lives Matter protests. Yeah. And then Millie is like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. I'm being used as a prop for Trump to put down these protests. And, you know, Millie was appalled. And this was part of the reason that led to his, at a later moment, reassuring the Chinese that Trump wasn't going to start nuclear World War Four despite his anti-Chinese rhetoric. How do we get to this level where we on one side say Trump is treasonous and he should be in prison, and then he says we should put to death these people who defied my orders? How did we get here? It's absolutely extraordinary. And I have vivid images in my mind as well of supporters and followers of President Trump at his rallies joining him in cheers saying, lock her up, lock her up, when they were talking about Hillary Clinton. So we've talked in earlier episodes about how autocrats learn from each other and they learn the same tactics. So when you have a former president like Donald Trump now saying that his own general should be locked up or sentenced to death for doing his job to uphold the US Constitution, that is really dangerous. What happens here in America is picked up and echoed. It legitimizes other countries resorting to similar tactics, which undermine democracy. But Jason, do you want to talk a little bit more about General Milley and Trump? Because your friend Brian Klaas wrote an excellent article about this recently. He pointed out something that I guess I had realized, which is, what does it say about us that this wasn't even front page news? Imagine if Nixon had called for those Republicans who wanted to impeach him over Watergate to be hung and quartered. Yeah, that probably would have been front page news in all newspapers globally. And now we're at a point where Trump's random hateful and anti-constitutional rants barely constitute news because we've so normalized it all. And in the UK, even more so than in the US, but in the US as well, we've had a certain sense of norms and civility that governed public life. And when they fell apart from the 1840s to the 1860s in the US, of course, our society fell apart and we fought a civil war. But other than in that period, there was a sense of This guy's a senator. Although I disagree with him, we talk in a certain way. And in the UK, you say the right honorable Mr. or Mrs. X, and you realize that there are boundary lines. We have in the UK, we have the good chap theory. You basically assume that people are good chaps. (laughs) Yes, good chap theory. I I love both the name of it and the concept. Good chap. What a splendid fellow. We're all jolly good chaps here, and our word is our bond. And one would never question one's good faith. Good chaps and chapesses. I actually want to live in that world, despite uh, how antiquated and silly it seems. Because with this lack of civility, we are in a point where it does make sense to more than half the country that our former president, Donald Trump, should be in jail. And it makes sense to a good 30 or 40% that our former president, were he to become president again, 
can decide that many of his opponents have committed treason and they should be executed. And the, the only way to conceptually understand this is when in broken societies, the Thailands and Madagascars and Libyas, where you have an all against all struggle. And part of what civility and norms is about is establishing facts, keeping the temperature down so things don't get too emotional, and then using the facts to debate the issues. This is the economy. These are the this. We disagree about tax policy. Great. Let's have a debate. We don't disagree about the color of the sky. What worries me is given that the civility is out the window, what we really need is people like General Mark Milley who are committed to the principles of the institution and are willing to stand up against a president who might be overstepping his bounds and trying to protect the rule of law. What we have in the UK is a similar thing. We used to have this apolitical civil service. And the idea was, is that the civil service gave neutral, balanced advice. They worked behind the scenes. And where there were questions over the behavior or the policy decisions of ministers, the civil service was there to make sure things were legal and honestly represented in parliament. And what we've seen in the UK is this current government constantly attacking the civil service and saying the civil service thwarted Brexit, is disloyal, has undermined government, is thwarting the will of the people. And those constant attacks on the civil service are eroding one of the unseen, unpublic, quiet pillars of our establishment. And what we actually have at the moment is more and more civil servants being threatened with, unless you do exactly what we want you to do, you will probably lose your job. And it is no coincidence that Liz Truss, when she became prime minister, the first thing she and her chancellor did was fire the permanent secretary of the treasury because they knew he would question the wisdom of their budget. And he has a great name. Tell everyone his great name, Alex. Tom Scholar. I love it. The man who epitomizes being the expert, the neutral fucking expert that I've dreamed of being my entire life is named Tom Scholar. Gotta love it. So now, dear listener, Jason has crossed the line in using sweary language. So the person who commented on the site formerly known as Twitter, hoping we might get a bit sweary. I hope you are now satisfied. We're now going to cut to our guest, who is a democracy expert, who spent most of her career working for the National Democratic Institute, a US body which is dedicated to promoting democratic values and institutions overseas. And it was in that capacity that I first met her when she and I were both working in Georgia. She is now based in Washington as Senior Vice President for Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Her name is Laura Thornton, and I'm delighted to introduce her now. We began our conversation by talking about where is disinformation coming from? Is it largely coming from outside, from hostile actors like the troll farms in Russia? Or is it being fertilized and spread by actors within our own societies? We track disinformation through different dashboards at ASD, 
And you can't even tell where the origin is. I mean, they just blend and bleed together. Like it could originally have been some guy in Moscow, and then it's picked up and laundered through our information ecosystem, or it could have been the other way around. I actually think we're probably doing most damage to ourselves. And then foreign actors just throw a flame on tinders. Like they just are like, ooh, look, this is upsetting people, critical race theory or whatever. I'm going to just throw gasoline on that. So I do think it's really difficult to tell the difference between foreign and domestic. I think there are malign actors that are interested in dividing us internally, in promoting disunity, in eroding trust in democracy, exploiting our fears, exploiting informed choice. There's incentives outside and inside. Okay, so some of it is homegrown, some of it is from outside. But why would people in the United States be interested in feeding these grievances, in stoking the cultural wars, in driving that polarization? What are they benefiting from it? I think that, unfortunately, quite a few people in the political scene here feel that that's a successful way to get elected. I mean, I think one of the biggest impacts of disinformation isn't the specific lie, but rather it's just, ah. I don't even know what the truth is. And that's the ultimate goal is just to create this idea of confusion. And then you just can sail to political power by saying, well, everyone lies, so vote for me because I'm going to get rid of immigrants or I'm going to crack down on the trans community or whatever you're afraid of, I'm going to deal with that. And so it's no surprise that some of these liberal leaders, the first thing they do is attack independent media. Your bad information is overtaking your good information. Do you see this phenomenon on the left? Or does it just become where it happens on the left? It's like the circle, it curves around, and it's a form of extremism that actually meets itself around the back, if that makes sense. I mean, do we have it on the left? Yeah, the horseshoe theory. (laughs) No, I mean, I think certainly if you ask people on the right, you know, you ask my uncle where is disinformation coming from? And he will tell you the New York Times, NPR, it's all fake news, da, 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 da. So it comes back more to the question of where are the referees? It's like there are no trusted referees anymore. And it's so sad because it's even in our lifetime. Like I remember being, you know, a teenager and watching the news at night and it was like NBC and CBS and three stations and they would present the same facts. Absolutely. And then people would come on and they might be like, well, this is how I think we should resolve this. Or this is how there would be debate and disagreement. But they agreed on the same set of facts. How do we reestablish trust in some sources? I mean, I find that really frightening. I had exactly the same experience in the UK before the invention of the Internet and social media. We all watched, this is the BBC. I mean, around the world, (laughs) everybody listened to the BBC. And uh, even that is now under attack. So even though less people are watching the BBC and people are now attacking some of what the BBC is saying in the UK, even that is now accused of being biased. Where are the trusted sources and how do we educate or help people figure out where the trusted sources are without us being accused? You're only saying that because you're a bleeding heart liberal and your own biases are dictating who those trusted sources are. We also, I think, need to address something deeper than, like, getting to the facts. But I think we've gone so far away to the point where it's not even about information anymore because it's about my community or my tribe, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. 
even if I agree that this person is trusted, one of my favorite examples of this was an election official from the state of Georgia, Gabriel Sterling, Republican, voted for Trump, and he spoke at the January 6th in Congress and said, the election was not stolen. I'm an election official. It was not stolen. He tells a story about how one of his relatives comes to him furious, right? The election was stolen. What about the ballot box? Da, 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 da. And Gabriel Sterling was like, mm -hmm. trusted referee. Here's what happened. The election was not stolen. Da, da, da. The relative then comes up with another lie. And Gabriel Sterling patiently walks him through. Anyway, this relative went through a list, a laundry list of lies, was refuted on each one, gets to the end of his list, shrugs his shoulders and goes, I don't care. I believe it in my heart. <laughs> we're dealing with hearts. We're, believing, yeah. we're not dealing with minds. So we keep focusing and we're so focused on, oh, if they just could get the right information or gosh, if we could just get them in these facts in front of them. And it's like, no, it's, it's not about minds. It's about hearts. So um, your question is, though, what do we do about that? I think that work is going to be long. I think that's a lot of depolarization efforts. I think that's a lot of community building. And I think it's going to take a lot on both the supply and the demand side. We need institutions to work. We need communities to work. We need them to deliver for people and earn their trust. And then we also need citizens to let go of some of this grievance and anger and not feel so threatened so one of the things we talk about in the podcast is how we get on this sort of feedback loop where all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world, sort of multiple challenges, creates fear and uncertainty. And that fear and uncertainty is exploited by people running for office who can stoke up those grievances or anxieties or blame it on others. And that results in sort of precisely the wrong kind of people being elected to push back against some of the false narratives. And your point about we need to be doing this at every level. We need citizens to be more engaged and informed and not just to sort of be passive consumers, but actually think about what they're consuming. But we also need leaders who call this out and who are willing to buck the trend and who say this isn't actually accurate and this isn't the right behavior and I'm going to behave in a certain way. But we're on this sort of negative cycle where all the incentives mean we get precisely the opposite of those leaders. If you want to get elected, you actually have to pander and use the same tactics. So that's a really difficult cycle to break out of. In the United States, part of our election system doesn't help either, right? Majoritarianism, first past the post, single member districts is the worst possible system for a polarized society. Ditto UK. Yeah. Right. Because forget other parties to enter. The incentive structure is such that you just need to win the base. And we see it like, for example, in the primaries for the president of the United States. If you want to win the base of the Republican Party, you have to tack. And, and, the, and the Democrats too. You have to tack so far to the extremes. So there are things we can do little, I mean, I would love a proportional system, but that would be a big change. But we can do things like rate choice, which we're starting to do, which completely changes the incentive structure. And if you had introduced in 2015, 2016, ranked choice in the Republican primary, you would not have had Donald Trump as the candidate because your incentive is like, I don't need to win just 30%, but I need to be that second choice. <laughs> so I think there's some system things that we can do that would cut down on extremism. I, I, I mean, I think we can have another conversation about 
uh, social media <laughs> and the algorithms. I mean, the algorithm is designed for engagement. That's how they make their money. And because humans are addled and imperfect and we stop and we like to look at the wreck on the highway, we are attracted to the most titillating, exciting bits and pieces. So we engage more with it. So they've done study after study proving that content that's untruthful completely overshadows and the algorithm pushes it over content that's truthful. Content that's hateful is pushed. There was a study by the BBC that made up sock puppet accounts and they were like young men, fake young men, and they clicked on like just a sexist meme and within seconds they are just inundated with like violence against women, misogynist, incel material. The Center for Countering Digital Hate set up sock puppet accounts of teenage girls and just hovering on TikTok over like this celebrity diet Within 2.5 seconds, they're given suicidal content. And within eight seconds, they're given eating disorder content. And that's where we come into the whole, like, those algorithms, we need to fix it. It is not this, like, oh, but we're just a public square where everyone has an equal voice. No, you are giving the worst people megaphones, and you're slapping duct tape over the rest of us. So you're actually suppressing speech because you're putting your finger on. So this has to end. And unfortunately, in the United States, that's very hard to do. Laura, I know this is a subject that is close to you, and but you have a direct personal experience of the toxic effect of big tech on your own daughter. Do you want to share some of that? Yes, it is painful. My daughter is anorexic, and she's unfortunately been away in a facility. Uh, she's doing very well, committed to recovery. So that's great. But what I've learned through this experience is unbelievable. And in a way, it was, I was a little almost embarrassed because here I have been looking at the role of information disorder and how it affects our body politic and our democracy. And I wasn't really paying attention to how it's like wrecking my house and my family and my daughter. And it's the same thing. It's the same methods that malign actors use. They're brilliant at building community. And you can see on Instagram, and TikTok, these eating disorder communities come together. They have anorexia influencers. They have starvation chat rooms. And again, the algorithm is just pummeling you with this content, making you feel terrible about yourself, promoting starvation. And when I realized that this was happening in my own house and that it was just ripping girls down, making them, and boys, there are boys that are anorexic or have eating disorders. So I'm so lucky compared to the poor parents, and there are parent networks that are also talking about how social media has led to their children's suicide. Anyway, so it is very personal, and there is a bill, Kids Online Safety Act, here in the United States. It can't get passed, mostly because tech companies are pouring so much money to defeat it. There was a bill in California, 680, that was just rejected, which would have protected children. It's not suppressing anyone's speech. It's just saying, hey, guys, you need to put safety measures for kids. Hey, you need to tell us a little bit about your platform architecture so that these kids aren't, those anorexia influences can still be there, but do they have to be elevated? And it was rejected. Let me ask you, is it the technology that has created the environment for these dangerous developments to happen? 
Or has something been going on undermining confidence in our democracy that means we're more disposed to believe in the sort of rubbish that we get presented? I mean, is it the technology or is it the context? Has something been happening that has made us more susceptible? I would say that it's a deeper problem and that technology is a tool to spread whatever negative anti-democratic trends are out there. And it's certainly a very powerful tool and it can definitely instigate feelings in people that didn't previously exist. But I think it's probably a combination of things. Certainly it's inability to deliver for citizens. And that's very, very prevalent across the world. People being fed up mostly because they feel it's elites and it's corruption. In some countries, it's overt corruption. You know, I pay money and I become a candidate for a party and I get elected and then I'm going to serve my interests and it's corrupt. But even in, in the U.S., it's corrupt because it's political finance. So obviously, if you're a very, very wealthy hedge fund manager here, you have more power and influence than the single mom working at McDonald's. You just do. And that just ticks people off, you know? And so then it's like, what is this government doing for me? They're not passing legislation that means anything to me. My life is not improving. So I think it's that. And then I think it's also the demand side. We, the people who are aggrieved and are afraid of change and want, people want a strong man more than they want rights and democracy. But it's linked to the first. It's because I think the strong man can come in and drain the swamp and fix all this. Of course, that never happens. And they're as corrupt as anyone else. We know this. But I think that we have a problem with fear of change. There are elements in our society that have grievances towards others because they see that as threatening the hierarchy of traditional power. That's why these illiberals go after women. That's why they go after LGBTQ or they go after immigrants, the great replacement theory. Oh, look at all these people coming and replacing us. And they, I'm not at the top anymore, white man. <laughs> like That freaks people out. So I think it's a combination of things. And then information and technology is just a tool to proliferate and lubricate that. What does it mean for the rest of the world if America goes down this rabbit hole? We are part of an ecosystem of democracy. When one falls, it's not contained to the boundaries of that country. It's contagious, which, by the way, is something Putin knows. He knows democracy is contagious, is I think a good part of the reason he invade, had a full-scale war against Ukraine is, oh gosh, you know, there's a democracy on my border. That's terrifying. So America becoming problematic and slipping and declining in democracy, of course, is a terrible signal to the world. And it's a motivator for malign actors elsewhere because they can just say, hey, wait a minute. I lost, therefore it was stolen. So Trump made that the new black. And then you're hearing that in Burma. And then you're hearing it in Israel. And it's like, oh, okay, so we don't believe elections anymore. So he's created a permission structure. And then it also weakens our commitment to supporting other Democrats and supporting democracy. If we move into this isolationist, illiberal, then it makes it very difficult for other countries to have the support that they need, particularly smaller countries. But I would say the same for a decline in major European countries as well. If we see big democratic declines in Germany, it would be very, very bad too, because we all definitely affect one another. But I do think in general, we need to challenge the democracy orthodoxy. Why representation? Why political parties? Honestly, they're kind of 
a thing of the past. They don't represent us. They are almost entirely male, wealthy, old, and from the dominant ethnic and religious group. And so no wonder people are frustrated. They're the gatekeeper. They're the bottleneck to power. So can we rethink representation? And some countries are doing interesting experiments in sortition. What is sortition? So sortition is from Greece, which is basically, instead of having these middle people parties in between us and serving as elected representatives, it is like jury duty. It's a random sample of citizens, and they serve as the representatives. I know this would be very difficult to do at a national level, but there have been some experiments at a city level. So in Madrid, for example, the council was taken over in this way by an initiative called Madrid Ahora. And they basically had just citizens. It was not a party. They had the platform written through these like town hall meetings. They had an online platform you could put in. They raised all their money through crowdsourcing. It was just really unique. And then when they were in office, then they put in all these interesting things. Anyway, so representation needs to be reconsidered. I think that we don't have to be stuck in these practices of the past that are not fit for purpose today. And I think there are ways that also we can have greater citizen participation so that they have more skin in the game. And other countries have done this from across the world. We have examples from citizen budgets in the Philippines to the great debate in France, where they take an issue and then they just go around and grab random citizens to put forward recommendations. I mean, just ways to open it up so people feel like they can participate more. Just sort of boiling it down, we do have big systemic problems that are going to take a slightly more concerted push to change some of the big macro problems. But there are many small local ideas, initiatives, and innovations that we could pursue that would begin to change things and you could build up from those. That's right. So just because the big things seem huge and impossible, it shouldn't stop us from doing some of the smaller stuff. We do have agency. We can make a difference. That's right. I agree with you. And I think it's, I've always felt about going local because people are most engaged locally anyway. What's happening in their community? And if they see like, the roads are getting fixed and the trash is getting taken out and I like my school and my leaders, local council leaders aren't getting bribes. Then they start to believe in democracy and then it trickles up and then you can scale it and scale it. And that's the hope, (laughs) that's the dream. That's the hope and that's the dream. And after the break, we're gonna hear more about how we can try to get neutral facts back in our lives. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. I loved how Laura ended the interview on a hopeful note. We do have agency. There are things we can do to improve our democracies and make them more resilient. But to pick up this one issue that we touched on at the introduction to this episode is how do we establish trust? 
and establish agreement on certain common facts. Unless we can reach some sort of agreement on what the basic facts are of the economic and political challenges in our world, we will never be able to come up with common solutions or agreement on how to tackle them. And this erosion of trust, not just in the media, but in each other and in the institutions, until we can establish some common trusted source of it, of information, we are never going to climb out of this polarization. I definitely came into political consciousness in the 1990s where I wasn't aware of contempt for experts. I understood the Republicans had a different view about the individual. They really wanted the sovereign individual to be liberated and you should make free choices, no nanny state. And that we wanted the government to think ahead and, and get out there and build railroads or fiber optic cables or whatever the things were. And I didn't think that the difference in our political tribes was we disagreed about facts. And I certainly didn't think the difference between us was, well, one team likes experts and the other doesn't. And what's so bizarre is that now in my own family, like everyone, we all have that Trump supporting uncle. Of course, I have a Trump supporting uncle. Or Brexit supporting sister. Correct. Exactly. So we'll, everyone is going to have that. Trump supporting uncle, and you have to deal with them. What I find so fascinating is that he used to treat me as an expert on Syria, because I used to deal more with him more when I lived in Syria. I had my Fulbright there. How should we deal with the Assads? What about this? What about, you know, how to constrain the Iranians? And then there was a certain thing that happened in the late 2000s, early 2010s. He's like, what do you know about this? You're just an expert. Oh, he actually said that? You're just an expert. He said that? Yeah, of course. He's changed as he's become a Trump-supporting uncle. And in that, he doesn't think experts should have a role. And what I want to unpick here, as we're getting at the question of neutral facts, he doesn't believe that his hairdresser should perform his open-heart surgery. He wants a surgeon with a medical degree and accreditation to do his open-heart surgery. But he doesn't want someone with Middle East expert formed by the elite, quote unquote, university to create our Middle East policies. This is just such a change. I, I want to get it. How did this come about? Because exactly as half the US and UK were coming to hate experts was the moment that I was deciding to be a professional expert. I think it depends on the Subject. I'm not saying that I am the world's most informed and correct on every single global foreign policy issue, but I do understand a lot about how international systems work, international institutions. I have some sense of the trajectory of the Israeli Palestinian conflict or the development of democracy in certain societies. I have certain expertise. And I'm constantly amazed by the number of friends of mine who say, well, what they need to do in the Middle East or what they could just need to do in Argentina. And they offer these kind of, you know, armchair expertise. It's sort of the man on the Clapham omnibus or the person in the pub with their pint chewing over these issues. And it's because they see on the BBC and they listen to the sort of talking heads and they think they're all experts because it's just sort of policies and gut feelings. 
And I have members of my family who are engineers or who work in the medical profession. And I would never, ever dream of expressing an opinion on how is the right way to build a factory. But they regularly argue with me on foreign policy. And they don't seem to see the irony. They don't seem to see the irony. I can only speculate that it is correlated, although not caused directly, by the abundance of access of information. In other words, in the old days, it wasn't just that you didn't speak Arabic and hadn't been to Syria. You couldn't find out anything about Syria. So when I said, well, you know, in 1900, Aleppo was the second largest city in the Ottoman Empire, and they you know, dominated the trade in woolens in this way, the guy didn't push back. Now, he Googles Aleppo, 19th century, and the internet, and he's like, oh, yeah, they had a large Kurdish population, and they this and they that, and it should be its own country. Because information is so dispersed, it seems easier to just shit on experts without grasping that expertise is needed to take information and turn it into facts. Can I be devil's advocate here, though, just a little bit? Please. As you were saying that, it made me think about, I can't remember which century it was now, but when the Bible was translated and printed so that ordinary people could read what was in the Bible for themselves rather than having it, rather than having it curated by a narrow cast of priests. And arguably, that democratized access to Christianity and the spoken word and the words of the Bible and allowed people to inform themselves. And in a way, it exposed some of the sort of corruption in the religious establishments because they were curating and controlling what was true religion. So in theory, more information about Syria, more information out there should allow people to become more informed. I don't think experts should be allowed to monopolize the debate. They should be open to challenge. But the basic facts or the basic evidence for climate change or the basic evidence for COVID, those should not be subject to debate. But if we go to this Protestant analogy, and of course, Many translations of the Bible were happening, but you need an expert to determine what Hebrew or Koinig Greek word is this word in German. The role of the expert was they convened committees. In England, it was a committee of scholars of Hebrew and Greek who determined this is what the translation is, because you can't have the individual staring at some Koinig Greek and saying, I think that uh, Matthew says we should all eat lobster. That actually presents it really, really well. You're right. You need experts to translate and interpret the information. No, maybe not even to interpret, but we need them to create a neutral translation. Okay, yes. That takes us into the last segment of the podcast, How Do We Order the Disorder? So the point I want to pick up on how to order the disorder, because it really resonated with me, is whether we still have to accept the current democratic orthodoxy that political parties are the basic building blocks of our political systems and they are the way in which we obtain representation, the will of the people in parliament or in Congress. Because what I've seen in the UK 
I think our political party system is no longer fit for purpose for today's politics. And the political party, the ossified structure we have of Labour and Conservative in a first-past-the-post system gives these two a stranglehold and a vested interest to keep systems the way they are. And they are an obstacle to constitutional reform because they benefit from the current system. And it's not like we don't have other political choices. In Scotland, they have the SNP, we have the Greens, we have the Liberal Democrats. But under the first past the post system, it's really hard for them to achieve meaningful weight and clout in Westminster. And we are given a choice between two parties. And you were saying that people get ossified in their tribes. But I think for a lot of people in the UK, actually, they don't feel wholly Labour or wholly Conservative. They're actually politically homeless. And there is no way for third or fourth parties to break through. And the political party system is an obstacle right now to reforming our system. It's an obstacle to reforming the House of Lords. It's an obstacle to drafting a new constitution. I think it's worth keeping in mind that our founding fathers in the United States were also worried about political parties. They thought it would cause partisanism and would make it very difficult to keep a unified society. Political parties were also banned by philosophers like Rousseau and Plato What you point out is the question of structures. Structures are really important. And the first past the post structure gives rise to entities like Labour and the Tories who never want to change the first past the post structure. And the Electoral College and the first past the post system here in the United States creates a system whereby the incumbent power holders are never going to want to change that system. And that's really problematic. But I want to point out that the opposite system of pure proportional representation doesn't necessarily work either. I mean, if you look at Israel, the dominance of the ultra-Orthodox parties and the crazy settler parties is only because they have their 15%, they vote their 15% at every election, and they hold whatever government hostage because they don't need to ever have a majority in any district. So there are problems with, with other sides. The fact here is that what we have is a product of our history And it's useful to have some kind of mixed system, something like a German system, whereby you have some part which is proportional representation and some part which is like the vote by your region or lender. We in the UK in specific have just one way of voting. You vote for an MP and the party in the area and it's first past the post. It's completely directed in that way. And I think that it's gonna be difficult to change But some kind of mixed system would work better. I find that very compelling. We have things to learn from other countries, including newer democracies like Germany. One thing I think really holds back the US and the UK is this sense of exceptionalism, that Westminster is the foundation of democracy, that we are the model for other countries around the world. And the US is the most powerful and successful democracy and the city on the hill. And I think that possibly inhibits us. It's like, but we're the ones who founded it, so we don't need to change. And certainly in the UK, there's such an attitude of condescension towards some of the countries in Europe. Oh, the dysfunction of Italy or the Belgian or the Netherlands government has collapsed again and 
Germany and France are in decline. And what you've suggested is, well, we have stuff we can learn from them. Of course. And we also have stuff that we can learn from our own founders, Alex. It's a misunderstanding of our own history. In the Federalist Papers, the American founders understood that the Constitution would evolve over time. Part of their genius was that it allowed for the amending of the Constitution. And that's how we abolished slavery and gave women the vote and made prohibition and then undid prohibition. Why are we not having amendments anymore? What is it going to take for us to learn all these lessons and actually codify them? Well, that's going to get to the point where our populaces and our leaders are willing to take difficult choices that might hurt them in the short term to help them in the long term. And I feel like that is what we get to on almost every Ordering the Disorder segment, Alex, which is that you've got to grow a pair and make decisions that, hey, it might hurt us in the short term, but we're trying to like save Western civilization. Let's change some of these fundamental aspects of society. That's it for this week. If you too want to help order the disorder, you can tap follow right now and you'll be notified when every episode launches. And you'll be shocked to know we're on social media as well. Just search Disorder Show. Finally, you can read more about today's topic by visiting our show notes. Our producer is George McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. Goalhanger's managing director is Jack Davenport. Thanks for listening and hope you have an orderly week. Thank you.